Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 142 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Before we start, though, I just want to remind you that I will be running my free five days to fall in love with your ADHD brain master series again, beginning on October 11th. So you can go to tracyotsuka.com forward slash I love my brain for more information or to sign up. So anyway, I am so happy to have you here today so that I can introduce you to my delightful guest, Becca King. Becca King is a registered dietitian nutritionist based in Charlotte, North Carolina. As an adult with ADHD who struggled for years with disordered eating, Becca is passionate about helping other adults with ADHD who struggle with binge eating, chronic dieting, and body image issues find food freedom and improve their self-esteem. She uses the principles of intuitive eating and a weight-inclusive approach to nutrition for ADHD in her virtual practice. In her free time, Becca loves taking Lola, her rescue pup, on long walks and can't wait to see live music again. You and me both, Becca. (laughs) How are you? I'm well. How are you? Well, thank you. So did I get all that right? Yes, you did. And I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. So before we go into the meat of what it is that we want to talk about, can I ask you to chat a bit about your ADHD diagnosis? Like when did it happen? How did it come about? All of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I got diagnosed when I was 19. I did really well in school, like a lot of other women. Um, and I, my mom, I think unknowingly just kept me really busy and in a schedule all the time. So I always had something to do and a routine to follow. And once I got to college, I really struggled. Um, freshman year was extremely challenging for me. I could barely get through just the day-to-day stuff. And then when I was a sophomore and I was in therapy, my roommate actually had ADHD and we're, we were pretty much spinning images of each other. So I brought it up to my therapist and she gave me some tests and she was like, yeah, you have ADHD. 
And so then I went to my doctor and started medication. And that at the time was really it. And it wasn't until like a few years later, um, I started working with a psychologist who really started pretty much doing ADHD coaching with me, but I didn't know it at the time because I was in therapy for something else. I was like, this is so weird. We're not really digging deep into things. He's just asking me about school and how I'm getting things done. And um, and looking back, I was like, oh, he pretty much was just coaching me. So yeah, that's kind of my journey a little bit with ADHD. So once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, were there some symptoms that you'd always wondered about, but you now recognize them as clearly ADHD? So when you were younger? Yes. So something weird that I used to do as a kid, I was very hyperactive and my brain at night would not shut off. And I remember when I was a kid, I would just pace at night up and down the hallway in my house. And somehow I never woke my parents up. And that, looking back, I'm like, oh, that's just because your thoughts never stopped. And you were always going where I'd be daydreaming and like just being in my yard growing up and like just playing for hours by myself daydreaming. I'm like, that's interesting. Or I fidgeted a lot. In around sixth grade, I discovered you could chew gum instead of bouncing in your chair all the time. Yeah. So looking back, I'm like, oh, I really started learning how to mask things. I had a gymnastic coach who taught us how to always look him in the eyes when people when he was talking. And it taught me how to really look like I'm paying attention to people sometimes when they're talking and I'm not taking in half of the things that they're saying to me. But especially okay. in school, I would catch myself like nodding and acting really engaged. And like in my head, I was like, you're not even taking in anything your professor's saying right now. So, so can I ask you, you did gymnastics. Did you stop the gymnastics when you went to college as well? I stopped gymnastics in middle school because I got to fall and then switched to playing basketball. So I played sports. I was always doing some sort of sports my whole life. Um, but basketball was really, once I got to the end of middle school and high school, is pretty much all I did with my free time. So. So you were definitely an athlete. And then when you went to school your freshman year, were you also an athlete or? No. Ah. Yeah. And so I think some of it was not having, I was still active, especially being on a college campus. You walk a lot when you're at a, I was at a big university. So I definitely walked a lot and I still went to the gym and stuff, but definitely wasn't the same activity level as before. And I think that made it noticeable and just not having the same structure or anyone kind of helping me being like, hey, this is the schedule you should follow or do this. And I could be more impulsive. I'm, I'm pretty impulsive. So yeah, well, it sounds like your your mom, your parents really provided a lot of that structure or scaffolding. Yes. Yeah. Without, I think, even noticing, knowing it, I think both my parents now, I see a lot of ADHD in both of them. And so it's kind of funny. I think they've just really figured out how to manage things without really knowing. So my dad pretty much does all the work stuff and my mom does all the home stuff and they have it really worked out well. And like, and I tell them like, it's really overwhelming for me because I don't have someone else in my life. So you guys have this nice structure in place. <laughs> I have to do all the things that you guys can kind of delegate to each other. So it makes it a little bit more challenging for my brain. That is a really good observation because I find that in my parents as well. I think the experience is similar. 
where there's this division of duties, you're good at this, you're good at that. And, you know, I, I see symptoms of ADHD in both of my parents as well, but they're good at different things. Yes, exactly. Um, but then when, cause I think you live, you live alone. I don't know why I heard you say that somewhere, maybe on your Instagram, <laughs> you live alone. And so you've got to do all the things. Yes. Yes. So it's, you know, keeping up with housework is not easy. Even though I live in a studio apartment, it is not easy to keep up with all of that and, you know, having my own business and, you know, trying to be a normal person and socialize and do all of that. So it gets kind of tiring sometimes. I get it. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? I would say I understand myself a lot more and I'm a lot more accepting of myself because especially like in high school, I always felt like there was something a little wrong, but it wasn't, it never really couldn't put the words to it. You know, like socially I struggled a little bit and, but I always had to just try really hard in school and I felt like everyone else didn't have to try as hard as I did. Um, So I think being able to accept myself and being able to kind of laugh, some of the things I used to have a lot more meltdowns when I was younger (laughs) over really silly things and looking back, I'm like, oh, man, now I can laugh at those things. And I find a lot of humor when I have little ADHD moments um, instead of getting really down on myself. So I think I have a much more positive outlook on myself, I would say. You know, that's such a good point. And I hear all the time, well, I think I have ADHD, but should I get diagnosed? And I'm always like, yes, you should get diagnosed because it's that that point that you just made that once... We can't really change anything, right? Until we actually understand ourselves and why we do what we do. Yeah. And once you start to understand yourself, it just makes that room to be able to make changes or even just accept those things and kind of have ways to work around things that work with your brain instead of trying to do all the neurotypical (laughs) strategies for things that don't work for you. And then it's frustrating when you're like, how come everyone else can do this? this way and I can't do it that way and I have to do it some other way to make it work. So totally. I think we're just kinder to ourselves because yeah. it no longer is this moral failing or this character flaw that we have. It's just, nope, this is how my brain works. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a lot easier that way to work through things, I think. So why nutrition? You know, I believe that our best purposes give meaning to our past. And so I'm wondering, was there a purpose there that is giving meaning to your past? (laughs) Yeah. So I've always wanted to work in healthcare, I think. I wanted to be a doctor originally, and then I started nursing school. um, And I was actually in a really bad car accident when I was in college. And it gave me a, it was a really big learning moment of realizing because they couldn't help the other people in the car accident. Um, that I wanted to help people. And it really gave me like a purpose in my life or, you know, how can I help people in some way to make their lives better or make a positive impact on people. And that really motivated me. um, And I was actually had a nutrition class in nursing school. And I was like, oh, this is a job. Even though I had seen a dietitian in the past for my eating disorder, it never really clicked in my head that it was actually a job for some reason. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I could talk about food for a living. And I don't have to work crazy hours like nurses do. You don't work holidays. I was like, honestly, this kind of sounds better. Um, And so I switched to public health. 
Um, Cause I didn't get into the second half of nursing school. It was like my GPA was like 0. 0.04 off or something, <laughs> but it was a sign that it just, that's not the right, that wasn't the right path for me. And that's a, totally okay. And so I switched to public health and then went on to get my master's in nutrition. And so, yeah, after I think having struggling too with an eating disorder, I already had a really good nutrition foundation because I was just kind of a walking nutrition database, unfortunately, for a while. But working on my own relationship with food also um, played a big part in that and wanting to help others do the same thing. So talk to us about, if you will, if you don't mind, about the eating disorder. Can you tell me what years would that have been? Was that pre-ADHD diagnoses or was it post? Yeah, it was. So I first got diagnosed with anorexia when I was 17, 17 or 18, right around the end of my senior year. And then when I got to college, I luckily had an eating disorder treatment program at my school. Um, So I was in that for a little while, but it really wasn't the best fit, unfortunately. So I kind of stopped going. And then my eating disorder kind of switched from being super restrictive to not knowing how to eat because I'd finally kind of worked through the being afraid of food and how it affected me. And then I just didn't know how to eat. So it kind of transitioned more to binge eating. And then once I got started on ADHD medication, I wouldn't eat enough during the day. And then at night when my meds would wear off, I call it the hunger monster now, comes out and I could just eat everything. Um, so I kind of run, kind of transitioned through various eating disorders. And it really wasn't until probably the beginning of grad school um, was when I discovered intuitive eating and um, really was able to heal my relationship with food. So what we should first um, talk about is how common anorexia and disordered eating are in young women with ADHD, right? Yes. So anorexia isn't as common, but it can be, sometimes it can be described as a way to, for women who are undiagnosed, if they do struggle with anorexia, a lot of times it's just a way to control the world around them because it's, or they feel like that's the only thing they can control. And looking back, I remember thinking that about food of like, I can't control anything you know, else around me. I had moved my junior year to a new, um, from Atlanta to Charlotte. So it was a transition. And I th- so for me, that was the only thing I could control. So it became that piece. Um, but for most women with ADHD, binge eating is the most common um, eating disorder. And I actually have a note about how common. So with people with ADHD, we're we have a threefold risk of an eating disorder and we're um, in some, and for those who do have an eating disorder, it can be more severe um, if ADHD is present. So. so tell me, you know, we use the term or we hear the term, actually, it's a fairly new term, disordered eating. Yeah. How is that different than anorexia? Is it, if you don't treat disordered eating, that's what you end up with is anorexia or how does that all work? Yeah, so disordered eating can be more of having behaviors that make, you know, your eating patterns, you know, off or restricting, but not necessarily anorexia in particular is usually focused more on keeping your weight controlled. Um, Whereas disordered eating, especially in people with ADHD, if you think about the executive functioning around 
you know, having to make a meal for yourself or feed yourself, all of the steps that are involved in that can be a challenge. So even patients who maybe actually have a true eating disorder, when they go through recovery, will still struggle with disordered eating afterwards because they still forget to eat or they struggle with cooking um, or they get really overwhelmed at deciding what to eat. So they just don't eat anything, but it's not in a way that they're trying to control their body size or something like that or a fear of gaining weight. It's more so just having ADHD and our brain's not working with us, if that makes sense. Okay. And so that's called disordered eating? Yeah. So usually you might not quite fit the criteria for a full-blown eating disorder, basically. So there's levels. I I didn't know this. So there's disordered eating, which then can Can, lead to to different forms of of an actual eating disorder, whether that's binge eating or bulimia or anorexia or um, orthorexia is a newer one, but that's not quite in the DSM-5 yet. What what is that? It is a hyper-focus on healthy eating. It might not necessarily be in the same sense of anorexia where it's focused on your bot, like changing your weight or being a fear of gaining weight. It's a focus on just being as healthy as possible. So a lot of like clean eating and very particular foods. Um, it's definitely a very common in a lot of chronic dieters that I see. Okay. So I want to understand this. So disordered eating could be just how challenged we are with ADHD, right? To remember to eat, to know what to eat, to care about eating. But if you don't, if you're not aware of that, it can lead to a full-blown eating disorder, which can then be anorexia, bulimia, all those things, which, I mean, they can lead to death. It's serious. Yeah, very serious. And um, and I think too, and, and we, I guess, as women with ADHD, we have, you know, the struggles with with executive dysfunction, I call it in the kitchen kind of deal. And then we also have all the messages from diet culture and society about how we're supposed to look and, you know, being constantly bombarded with all of that too. So I think that also complicates things because we get told so many messages about what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat, how we should look, what the latest diet is, all of that. So can I ask you about that? I just feel like I have a 22-year-old daughter, and I can't even begin to tell you how many of her friends, they were beyond disordered eating. They had eating disorders. Um, She claims, and and I trust her if she says, you know, that she has struggled with disordered eating. Yeah. I don't remember this. Is this something that is, is it because of social media, do you think? Is it just to the extent, I mean, yeah, you know, we were all on diets. Like I'm thinking of, you know, when I was in high school and college, but it wasn't to this level. Yeah, I think social media for the younger generations has really put body image in the forefront of things. And there's so many filters and apps for editing yourself. So people don't even look like how they look in real life. And I think that really warps people or especially girls perception of what they're supposed to look like. Um, And even there's even really young girls going and getting plastic surgery to look like, like they're in like the filters they have. And I'm like, that is just breaks my heart, (laughs) honestly, because that's just, 
it's really sad to think that, you know, these really young girls think that they're not enough when they're definitely more than enough. And I'm sure absolutely beautiful souls and don't need to be spending thousands of dollars to change their appearance. To or, look like everyone else, right? Yeah. And that in and most of the time the images like that you see on social media are so edited or not real um, that you're never going to achieve that. So then girls just feel really bad about themselves or like they're not good enough. So can I ask, are you finding this in boys? Is it becoming more common? I don't. Or not really, as far as disordered eating? Uh, yeah, I think guys, I, I don't work with as many guys. Uh, I work primarily with women, but I do see it often. More often, I would say, I think guys are being more comfortable with talking about it now or seeing, because there's some things I think sometimes that are labeled as okay for guys, like, like not eating, you know, being working all day and then ordering a pizza and because they're like, you know, eating a whole entire pizza in one sitting. And even though, and that could be socially more socially acceptable for guys than it is for a girl because guys, are, you know, the idea, even though I wouldn't agree with it, but because you guys can eat more than girls or that social belief. Um, well, and there seems to be almost competitiveness around that. Yeah, I have a 19-year-old son as well. And, you know, oh, I ate a whole pizza. Well, I ate a pizza and a half. Like, that's a good thing, right? Versus yeah. a girl probably wouldn't. Opposite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> girls would be the opposite of like, actually, you know, I only ate one piece of pizza or I ate a cauliflower pizza. I was healthy type of thing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, my son is, um, he's really into working out and I have noticed, you know, that he's very, cause so he does this thing where he cuts and mm -hmm. so then he loses a bunch of weight and then he gains a bunch of weight so that he can build up the muscle yep. and then he goes back and he cuts. And I mean, even he was saying, you know, like he was conscious of the fact that he was really concerned about what he was eating. Yeah. It's, and I think it's what you're saying that they're now talking about it. Yeah. I think it used to not be as normal of a conversation amongst guys, or maybe they have realized some of their behaviors aren't as normal as they think they are. I have read statistics about body dysmorphia and yeah. men who, among bodybuilders, who have ADHD. Yes. Very common, I would say. Um, I think he had read a bunch of studies and so he started to get worried about it. And he was yeah. like, you know what? I'm getting rid of the mirror. I'm getting rid of the scale. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Cause a lot of times I think too, it can become a hyper focus for some people of like, Ooh, for, especially for ADHD years who like sports and fitness and you know, working out, it can easily become a hyper fixation of like what you want to do. And then the reward piece of, getting to your goal weight or being able to lift a certain amount or whatever, because it's such a rewarding thing for people. So it's hard to sometimes distance yourself from that, even when you can recognize it's not helpful, but it's like, Ooh, I really enjoy seeing when I get on the scale, seeing that number go down. But then, you know, obviously if the number goes the other way, then people feel really bad about themselves. So uh, it's that dopamine thing, right? Yeah. So that leads into my next question, just perfectly. What is it about the ADHD brain that causes the struggle around what you're talking about, but also food? Yeah. So because our brains are lower in dopamine, we're constantly seeking dopamine. And especially in women who get diagnosed later in life, it can actually be 
food can end up being what they use as a way to self-medicate. Almost using carbs in particular and sweets um, are very give our brains lots of dopamine. So a lot of people, a lot of my clients will have been kind of people who are like, I never understood why I just could eat all the time and I was never hungry. I knew I wasn't hungry. I just like needed to do something or I was bored and I just never understood it. And then when they make the connection that it's to having, once they get diagnosed that they're eating for stimulation, it changes their world. So, Well, and I would think then for women, young women, especially if you've got ADHD, number one, you have all the ADHD challenges around food. Yes. Right. Of, you know, like just even knowing when you're hungry. Yeah. We just don't pay attention. No. But then you also have all of the diet culture messages, which just add right on top of that. Yeah. And it, it makes things really complicated. And then people feel really guilty for using food as a source of stimulation because it's like I shouldn't be eating I shouldn't be eating potato chips they're bad but you know they find themselves eating them while they're studying or whatever because it helps them pay attention and it's very interesting and fun to get to work with people to remove that piece of the shame and guilt around it and then just also help them find other you know tools for stimulation so that food can be a part of it but food doesn't have to be the only tool that they have access to Makes sense to me. So, Becca, you call yourself an ADHD nutritionist. Yes. What is the difference between any old nutritionist and an ADHD nutritionist? Well, I would say, so I guess the big difference is that I only work with people who either have ADHD or think they have ADHD and they're exploring their diagnosis. Um, I usually, My focus with my clients is to figure out you know, how to work with their brain and not against it because I've had a lot of clients who've already worked with a nutritionist or a dietitian before and they're like, I know all the things I should do, but I can't do them. And so my job is to help figure out, you know, how can we make, you know, whether it is meal, like figuring out what to cook or what cook part of the cooking process you don't like so we can simplify it so that you can cook meals and it's actually easy for you versus it feeling like, it's nails on a chalkboard or like this most terrible task that you have to get completed. I guess that's probably the biggest difference is I really just work with making people's executive functioning skills a little bit better when it comes to food. So it sounds like nutrition plus coaching because you're actually working with them to put a plan in place, some systems. Exactly. Yeah. So for my clients, you know, my clients struggle with remembering to eat where we have we have lower levels of what's called interoceptive awareness. So like picking up on our hunger cues or when we have to go to the bathroom is another one. Women are always like, yep, I wait until the last minute and I'm running to the bathroom. I'm like, yep, we do the same thing with hunger. We don't pick up on it or we wait until it is so hard to ignore. And at that point, we're really, really hungry and that's hard to eat in a way that's mindful. Um, and so I help them try to figure out, you know, how can we help you learn those smaller signs of hunger? And then how can we work on prioritizing that and making it as easy as possible to stop and eat? Because for some people, they're like, if I stop and break my hyperfocus to eat, I'm done. And I'm like, we're not, you're not going to be done. I promise we, ha- we can work through it so that you can eat. Because if you're running on empty, it's really hard to think through things <laughs> and actually get things done. So, 
Well, and you forget to even like, I, I couldn't even, <laughs> I remember the other day I was just exhausted and nasty and <laughs> I wasn't nasty. I was grumpy and just, I usually, you know, I have so much energy, I don't know what to do with it. And I couldn't figure it out. And it was four o'clock. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, I literally had not eaten all day. I had just yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, we just get so busy and going. I call lunch like the forgotten meal because we just get busy and we get going with our day and doing things. And we're so stimulated and going by everything around us that we don't recognize our like internal needs until they're like, Hello, like you haven't been. You're crashing. It. Yeah, yeah. Normally, it's that hanger, hangriness, or I get, I kind of get frustrated usually with my. I think my internet speed is being really slow, and then I usually, if when it hasn't slowed down at all, and that's how I know I'm like you are getting irritated at really irrelevant things. So like you sh- should probably stop and <laughs> and eat something. So what are some other things that? with our ADHD brains we struggle with. You talked about, is it called interoceptive awareness? Yes. Okay. You talked about that. We talked about forgetting to eat, right? <laughs> That's a big one for me. Yes. What uh, else? Forgetting to eat, let's see. Um, even just the overwhelm of the whole cooking process can prevent some people from even doing it. Um, so it's like, you know, I, they might have all the ingredients in their fridge to make a recipe, but it might feel like there's so many steps and that's just way too much. So I'll just order, order takeout or, you know, whatever get delivery to my house. And that, cause that feels easier for a lot of people or people will, um, it's like per- use eating as a way to procrastinate on things. Oh, procrastinate eating. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very big one. <laughs> I procrastinate clean. I don't procrastinate eat. Yes. Thankfully. I mean, if you're going to procrastinate something, probably cleaning is better than eating. What yeah. about snacking late at night? Is that an ADHD thing or just a regular thing? Yeah. I mean, I think it it can be kind of a habitual thing. I think for a lot of people, ADHD or not, at the end of the day, a lot of us sit down on the couch and turn on the TV and snack. I think that very common. But I think for people with ADHD, if you're on medicine, especially like when your meds wear off, I think your brain is seeking that dopamine. Um, and, and we don't, and it's a very easy mind, like eating can be so easy and mindless for us versus other things that give us stimulation that we'd rather do that. And I think too, yeah, even if you're not on medication, I think in the evening time, we're not as occupied with things and we're kind of usually more tired. So food can be an easier option for stimulation a lot of times. I'm assuming not being able to figure out what to eat. That's always, that's always my problem because I, I don't know what I'm going to want. My, my husband used to just, it drove him nuts. (laughs) He wanted to shop for the whole week. And I was like, and we had a foreign exchange student from Germany who came and lived with us. And, (laughs) you know, he was German and totally like my husband, complete linear type A, you know, boom, boom, boom. (laughs) And they together would gang up on me and they would decide that they were going to plan the whole week. They'd go shopping and it irritated the hell out of me because my (laughs) argument was always, I'm not going to know what I want to eat until I'm actually hungry, right? Yeah, a lot of people struggle with that and even and that can make it challenging too because a lot of people think they have to meal plan that way or they have to meal prep 
and you don't have to do that. I find going to the grocery store more often is better for me. Uh, I don't, I still go a little bit less because of COVID, but before COVID, I don't, I would buy meat stuff for a couple meals and go back to the store a few days later because it was just easier to not have to decide everything because I would change my mind where I know, you know, I buy the ingredients and then be like, yeah, actually that doesn't sound good anymore. And then they go bad, right? In the refrigerator. And then you open the refrigerator and you feel guilty. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's like, man, or you're like, even people be like, it, yeah, you feel a lot of guilt or shame <laughs> even because you're like, man, I should be able to just cook this meal where mm-hmm. I bought that and that. Why do I not want to use it? And it's like, it just doesn't sound like what I want anymore. So, ah, yeah. so I know that your love, I, I don't I don't even know how to phrase this, but I know that what you teach your ADHD clients is all about intuitive eating. Yes. Correct? That's your thing. Yes. So can you explain to us what is intuitive eating? Yeah. So intuitive eating is a non-diet approach to nutrition. So it really focuses in on our internal cues versus listening to external diet cues or rules, basically. And so it's more focused on health-promoting behaviors having a healthier relationship with food and a better body image versus, you know, the number on the scale sort of thing. So it really helps you if you think about babies essentially are born as intuitive eaters. You know, they cry when they're hungry, they either fall asleep or turn their head away when they're full. And then as they get older, you start putting them on eating schedules and telling them what to eat and how much to eat. If you grew up in the clean plate household like me, you weren't allowed to leave the, pl- the table until you finish your vegetables. And then over time, those sorts of things can really influence our relationship with food um, and kind of get us out of touch with those cues. So especially if you grew up in a, plain, a clean plate household, that can really in- start to enforce overeating because kids are really smart and know when they're full. And when you tell them they can't, you know, they need to finish what's on their plate in order to get dessert or leave the table. Then you're just inc- basically conditioning them to associate fullness with being really uncomfortably full. Um, and then over time, it can feel really weird sometimes for my clients when we when we start learning to tap into our hunger and fullness of like being comfortably full versus that uncomfortable version of fullness. You know what's interesting, Becca? I was just you just got me thinking. My daughter recently told me, I didn't remember this, but she said, and we had a really fabulous pediatrician, but I think this was just kind of like, and I don't know if they do this today, you know, pediatricians do this, but he had a chart and he always marked what percentage she was for height and weight. Mm -hmm. And she remembers when she had lost some weight. I mean, she was only like 12 and she was really feeling good about herself. And she went to the doctor and she said, he was like, you're still at the, you know, 95th percentile for weight. And I wasn't even overweight. I was thin, but because who knows what, I don't know, her bones, you know, were heavier, or maybe she had more muscle than your typical kid. But she said she felt so bad about that. And she hated to go to the doctor because of it. I didn't even know that that was going on, but wouldn't that be where all of that starts? Yeah. that Yeah. Even from doctors, that's even where stuff like that can start. And even from such a young age, you know, even in school, you get weighed in health class for some, in some um, schools. 
and you know it's a competition and they talk about weight and from a young age a lot of the messages that we get is that we shouldn't listen to our bodies essentially and that diets know what's better for us than what we know even though if you look at diets over you know the decades they go back and forth which you know what works and what doesn't work you know in the 90s it was the fat free craze mm-hmm. and that was so we terrible. ended up eating a bunch of hydrogenated crap. Yeah, and now it's now fat is not bad, and mm-hmm. we've gone the other way. And it's just really funny because the diets just tend to rebrand themselves, and <laughs> they don't and, work, right? They, they don't work. Yeah, they don't work. And I think you know um, when Dr. Hallwell says you know ADHDers are consistently inconsistent, like diets require consistency. So they're not really made for people with ADHD (laughs) and that's okay. And there's actually a lot of research to show that about 90 to 95% of diets fail in the long term. So I think, you know, compared to other medical treatments, if they only worked five to 10% of the the time, your doctor's probably not going to tell you to do that medical treatment if it only worked that often. So... Absolutely. Okay. So can you give us some intuitive eating tips for the ADHD brain? Yeah. So one of the biggest ones, ooh, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) For the ADHD brain, some of the differences I would say is there's some schools of thought with intuitive eating is there's like no scheduling or planning (laughs) and like just listening to your body. And I'm like, that doesn't always work with with ADHD, like we still kind of need some structure and plan in place. And I find making it as easy as possible. So when you notice that you're hungry, it's easy to stop and grab something to eat. So having things on hand that are quick and easy and almost kind of grab and go sort of things versus telling ourselves we have to have, you know, some sort of, you know, we have to have this elaborate snack or this, you know, everything in our house is cooked from scratch to be healthy or nutritious, it doesn't have to be. So I'm a big fan of like, hey, what are the shortcuts you can take to make eating like as easy as possible, whether that is, you know, when it's for meals, like buying a rotisserie chicken, so you don't have to, you have an easy grab and go protein or using like the 90 second bags of rice or whatever. So having things, even snacks, like I always have like, what quick snacks can you have in your pantry or your fridge or in your desk at work? or in your office or whatever, that when you notice you're hungry, you can actually stop and eat versus telling yourself, oh, that's too many steps. So I'm just going to keep working. Let me do one more thing is what I hear a lot. And then I'll get up and get a snack. And that usually is when hours go by and then we're ravenous and we're more likely to overeat. Um, so I think probably the biggest tip would be like starting to learn hunger cues or paying attention to them. Um, so is that mindfulness? Yeah. So yeah, intuitive eating is very similar to mindful eating in the idea of like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. Um, But it's a little bit different in that it also addresses emotional eating and our emotional aspect like relationship with food. Um, And I put eating for stimulation as kind of in the same area as emotional eating. Um, Some people would call it boredom eating. but I think for ADHDers, it's a little bit different sometimes. So it's kind of building up that toolkit of, you know, food can be what I use for stimulation, but trying to do it in a way that's mindful and present. Because a lot of times we'll eat with a lot, a lot of ADHDers eat with distractions. So it's trying to limit those so we can have 
a more connected eating experience with our food and that way we're more connected to our bodies. What does that look like? Yeah. So for me, sometimes it can be understimulating to eat without distractions. Yeah. <laughs> like it is personally for me, it feels like nails on a chalkboard in my to eat by myself in my apartment with no with nothing going on, like no sound, nothing. So I find it's figuring out what level for some people it might not be completely no distractions, but it might be having some music on or a podcast or an audio book or something in the background, but being able to sit down and kind of actually look at your food when you sit down and eat um, and think about how the food is tasting and the texture and what you're, you know, if you're starting to notice that you're getting full and eating a little bit more slowly than we might normally eat as well. So trying to at least visually engage ourselves, I think is the biggest part with with eating with distractions. Because when I remember eating in front of the TV sometimes and like not even looking down at my bowl of food and then it would be gone. And I'm like, wait, did I eat this? I don't like, did my dog eat this when I wasn't looking? And, and, and then I was like, no, you're just that distracted. So like, I don't face my TV when I eat or I try not to because it just tempts me. Can you, <laughs> like, you should turn me on. It's okay. So just trying to limit, I think, or have for some of my clients, if, if you eat every single meal and snack with distractions and just say, start with a snack um, and have that, you know, it's a nice, I, for me, I use it as a moment with myself to kind of check in and slow down with all the busyness in my head and what I have going on in my day. I use it as an opportunity just to kind of pause and check in with myself um, and see, you know, what I need, whether that's a moment to breathe, some fresh air, to call someone. Um, but it gives me an opportunity to slow down versus just being going constantly. Would that also be making things pretty? I mean, one of the things that I'll do is I think Trader Joe's actually does a really good job at if you have to buy something frozen, you know, it's not junk. Yes. And Trader Joe's. <laughs> putting it on like a really pretty china plate and, you know, so it's not out of a disgusting package. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell my, I tell my clients to either, especially if it's a frozen meal or even if you get, you know, like takeout sushi or get takeout of getting a plate and putting it on the plate. So it's more visually appealing and that can help you know, and especially if you add, you know, adding vegetables and colorful foods can make it more visually appealing to us. So it can make it a little bit easier to sit down. Some of my clients even will get fun bowls or different um, cooking utensils that they get excited about. And they're like, it just helps me get excited about the meal. And it makes it easier for me to sit down and actually eat it and enjoy it. And it's so much more satisfying than eating it out of a plastic container or a styrofoam box or something like that. It, it totally is. And I mean, that was my big thing with COVID. I stopped, you know, um, buying food that was takeout. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I just felt like by the time I put it on the plate and all that and make it pretty, I might as well have cooked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't eat out of, you know, take to go boxes. Yeah. It's just not as. So, in intuitive eating, there's a one of the principles is the satisfaction factor. And so that's, you know, how to get the most enjoyment or pleasure from our eating experience. And I think making sure that it is visually appealing is a huge part of it being satisfying to us. Oh, I, 
kind of like I consider that principle like the psychological component of fullness of like this meal was really good and satisfying so I don't want to keep eating you know to satisfy some sort of craving if you've ever been like on a diet and you try to ignore a craving by like I'm craving something sweet so instead of eating the chocolate that I'm craving I'll eat some fruit and that won't hit the spot so you start eating something else and you kind of Finally, and then eventually you finally cave and just eat the chocolate. And I was like, if you would have just ate it in the first place, you would have eaten a lot less at the end of the day because you're just listening to your body. So that's kind of where that principle comes in. But I think, like you were saying, yeah, I think plating your food, even if it's a snack, like taking your potato chips out of of a bag and putting them in a bowl, A, so you could see how much you're eating and it's not as mindless. And B, it just looked like you can kind of, I don't know, connect with that food a little bit better versus it just being, it's easy to eat a lot of potato chips when you can't see into the bag. (laughs) (laughs) So I can understand doing, you know, this mindful eating. Yeah. When it's maybe you and your spouse or you and your grown children. Yeah. What about if you've got a bunch of little kids? Like when my kids were little, I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would encourage, there's a couple intuitive eating um, dietitians who do it with children. And so I think I would highly recommend if anyone has kids, um, there's some really great accounts on Instagram to follow about how to raise kids to be intuitive eaters. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. And it's really cool to see because it's just a different way of, you know, the idea of kind of like not making the clean plate club and all of those behaviors of kind of I think it helps with just allowing kids, bringing in them to be a part of the decision-making process with eating and things like that. Um, so they develop autonomy with eating versus having someone constantly telling them what to eat. Um, you know, here's your food. You have to eat this and asking them, you know, what kind of vegetable do you want to eat tonight? You know, here's the three vegetables we have. What should we make kind of thing? And including them in that process, I think, helps kids grow up to be more confident with eating. And it doesn't feel as scary when you get to college and you're like, I don't know how to decide what to eat or, you know, things like that. So, Oh, that's interesting because you never really had choices around it. You just ate what was put in front of you. Yeah. And so a lot of it is kind of letting kids also be a part of that process. I think too, it can be good for, I think that part can be really good for families. I know my parents did that unknowingly a lot. My dad traveled a lot. So my mom would, I would be the one who would uh, be asked once for dinner. So I would always have to help make that decision. Um, but that is a lot of part of it too. Um, and just normalizing all food so that there isn't, you know, finish your vegetables so that you can get ice cream after dinner. And then that puts ice cream up on a pedestal um, or our parents will like really restrict sugar. And then I have a lot of clients whose parents did that as kids. And now they feel out of control as adults around sugar because, or sweets, because they were just never normalized. They were this thing they had to earn or were as a reward or something like that. What do you think about kind of these rules that society has (laughs) created, right? Structure around when to eat. Like you have to get up in the morning and have breakfast and then you have to have lunch at noon and then you have to have dinner at six. I remember as a child, 
My parents were always trying to get me to eat breakfast. In fact, when I was 16 and driving, I still remember my father standing at the bottom of the stairway, (laughs) keys in his hand for the car, and I wasn't allowed. And then in his, you know, other hand, (laughs) he had this disgusting glass of powdered milk because he he had read that powdered milk was healthier than, you know, non-powdered milk. And I just like cringe. I did not want to eat in the morning. And to this day, I am not hungry in the morning. Yeah, there are some people who aren't breakfast eaters. Um, I am a breakfast eater, but my little sister is not a breakfast eater. And that used to be a big, big fighting area for my mom's little sister because it was a battle to get her to eat anything before she would go to school in the mornings. Um, But I think that's where an intuitive eating, it's like, it's nice to have that structure, I think, sometimes. Um, of when a meal is, but it's also, you know, if you get hungry an hour before that time, you know, if lunch is supposed to be at 12, but you're hungry for lunch at 11 and you have the ability if, you know, obviously if you're at a job and you can only take lunch at a certain time, that's a little bit different. But if you have the ability to stop and eat at 11 because you notice you're hungry, it's probably a better eating experience than waiting a whole hour and then you're starving. And then you usually just wolf down your food because you're so hungry at that point. So I think it's just kind of listening to your body. And sometimes it's not going to be the traditional meal times. Like I rarely eat dinner personally before seven because I'm not hungry. I'm usually doing stuff. And then, and so I eat later than what most people would be like, Ooh, I thought you're not supposed to eat past that time. And it's like, well, if I'm, if that's when I actually get hungry and wind down for my day and I don't, and I stay up a little bit later and I can't eat that late. So I do. But yeah, I think it depends obviously on a lot of factors because for some people, if you have families and things like that, you might have to be more on a schedule with things. But I think being open to being flexible is important because I know society tells us we have to do it at certain times or like it's wrong to not. (laughs) I I would come home. You're bringing up all these memories. I would come (laughs) home from you know, school or activities or whatever it was. And I remember I'd be so hungry and my mom would be in the kitchen cooking dinner and she would get so mad at me because I would eat everything. And then I wasn't hungry for dinner. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And like, and that's so common too, or, you know, or getting yelled out of like, don't, don't eat or get out of the kitchen because you're going to spoil dinner. And then you sit down for dinner and you're just so hungry at that point. Um, and so it's hard to, yeah, like I've mentioned before, just eating mindfully when we get to that point of excessive hunger, all of our tensions to eat like in a conscious, moderate way tend to go out the window. So anything else as far as intuitive eating tips, maybe it like reducing shame or anything around that. Yeah. That can take a little bit to work through for sure. Cause I think that is probably one of the more challenging things, especially depending on how many rules you've had around food or how many foods you have that maybe you don't like allow yourself to eat or keep in the house, for instance. I would say that's a big one. A lot of people are like, well, if I just don't keep it in the house, I won't, you know, overeat it. But it a lot of times it's when we have restrictions around food basically, whether that's physically by not keeping them in our house or psychologically by telling ourselves that they're bad, we're more likely to overeat those foods every time we're around them. 
Um, and then we usually have that guilt and shame afterwards. So we beat ourselves up and use that as like, see, this is why you don't eat this food and restrict it again. So part of it is can be normalizing that. And sometimes that can be where getting support is really helpful so that you can have someone who has a framework, like an approach to doing it versus there's some people who, especially on social media with intuitive eating, will be like, I just went all in and, you know, ditched all my food rules and allowed all the foods back into my life all at one time. And I find for people with ADHD that that all in approach can be really overwhelming. So I take more of a stepwise approach with my clients and kind of work through foods more one at a time. Um, So that way it's not overwhelming for people because that can make it like, okay, this was way too much. And I'm so I'm not going to do this. I'll I'll go back to, you know, following a diet or doing something else because that is feels more comfortable. So in intuitive eating, are you always working on just being kinder to yourself? And you know, those, the the crap that goes on in our brain, the ruminating and the... Yeah. So yeah, there's um, curious awareness is a big idea in intuitive eating of approaching, you know, every eating experience or our thoughts about food and our bodies with curiosity and not judgment. So instead of beating yourself up, let's say, because you binged, exploring why that happened without judgment. So thinking about your day and realizing, oh, if I binged, you know, when I was realized why I was binging at night, finally was, oh, I'm not eating enough during the day. And this is why at night I am so excessively hungry. So I need to eat more during the day versus constantly just beating myself up over it and that not getting me anywhere. Um, But when you're able to kind of explore with that curiosity, it's like, ooh, I can kind of figure out what happened and what I could do differently next time. So, ha, huh, that is so interesting. So it's yeah. a lot about what am I learning about myself? Like, yeah, yeah, a common just, denominator kind of thing. Yeah, a constant learning. Yeah, just being a lifelong learner about yourself. And I think when you're able, a lot of times what happens when you're able to honor your hunger, especially in your fullness, and know, you know, why you're eating when it's or once you figure out what your hunger cues are. For instance, a lot of my clients can start to identify when they're eating. For reasons outside of hunger. And so it can be an easier way to start taking care of ourselves of if noticing, hey, I slept really bad today or the past few days and I have a lot more carb cravings, which is totally normal when we are sleep deprived. So noticing that and picking up on that and like, okay, how can I work on my sleep? Or noticing, I noticed in the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> I would like mindless, I just kept, couldn't stop eating pretzels. Like I had the Trader Joe's honey wheat pretzels. Oh my gosh. Yes. I I love love them. And in the beginning of the pandemic, because I wasn't going to the grocery store as much and I was just lonely. And I noticed that when I would feel lonely, I would just go grab a handful of pretzels. And I was like, this isn't productive. I was like, you're not even hungry. And so then I realized because I was lonely, I just started calling my family more. And I was like, hey, letting you know, you're going to get more calls from me because I can't hang out and talk to people like I normally do. And I'm lonely. So and I can't keep eating these pretzels. And I don't need to keep eating these pretzels just to keep eating them because they're gone way too quickly. And then I have to go back to the store to get more of them. (laughs) I just love this whole idea for the ADHD brain because it just clicks on certain concepts that I know work for me and I know they work for the women that, you know, have ADHD that I've been around. And the first one is that you're the expert on you. And so you have to tap into that rudder and how you feel rather than all the rules, right? 
Yes, that is that is it. Is that you know we get told so much that we aren't the expert on ourselves, and it's going back to that spot of learning that yeah, I can be the expert on myself, and I can trust my body. And I know when I first heard of intuitive eating, I really thought it was woo woo. I was like, I was on Instagram and I found this dietitian who um, was talking about intuitive eating, and I was like still struggling with binge eating. All the things I was doing wasn't working. And I was, and at first I was like, this is woo-woo. You can't listen to your body. What? Also, this is insane. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. You know, why not? And sure enough, I was like, oh, they're, they're onto something. And so totally, I if, if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, that sounds really far out there and unrealistic. I promise you, I felt the same way when I first heard of intuitive eating and had kind of was very skeptical when I started my journey and have since been proven otherwise. So, Well, and it's also all about curiosity, yeah, which we're lifelong learners. So that makes so much sense to me as well. And then the biggest one, because to me that this is what it all points to positive emotion. When yeah. we feel good, we do good, right? Exactly. Yeah. And Exactly. And a lot of times people think, oh, if I eat, eat intuitively, I'm just going to eat, you know, cake and cookie and pizza and frat, whatever, all the time. But, you know, how do those foods make you feel if you ate them 24 7? And most of the time people say that don't make, that wouldn't make me feel good. I wouldn't want to do that. And it's like, exactly. And you intuitively know that eating that all the time wouldn't make you feel great. And maybe initially when you let go of food rules, you might have some days where that is what you eat. And you realize you don't feel great and that actually eating nutrient dense foods does make you feel good. And that's, I think a big piece of intuitive eating too, is like eating in a way that makes you feel your best. And usually that involves more nutrient dense foods and not lots and lots of, um, you know, the other stuff that's out there. (laughs) So Becca, This was a lovely conversation, but I want to ask you one more question that is not related to intuitive eating. Okay. What do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think I'm going to go back to that piece earlier and that I mentioned about what, how things have changed. And I think self-acceptance is probably one of the keys to being successful. Wonderful. So are you working on something that you want to tell us about? I am working on a website, so I'm really excited about that. Yay. Um, That's been in the works for a little while, but I'm excited to finally not just have Instagram for things. I can actually have a landing page and talk about things a little bit more in depth there. Um, But right now, I'm just continuing to grow my coaching program is really my major focus. So. Wonderful. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Yeah. If you would want to find me, the best place is Instagram at ADHD.nutritionist. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really engage on Facebook. So if you want to actually interact with me, Instagram is the best place to find me. Okay. So it's ADHD.nutritionist? Yes. And do you have the URL for your website yet? It is not active, so I don't I can't think of it off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you want to put it in the show notes, yes. this might motivate you. Because yes. <laughs> we've got about a month, I think, till this one's gonna air. Yes. 
Okay. That motivate me. <laughs> we will put it in the show notes. Yeah. Becca, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. You are just such a delight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm so proud of us because we had all kinds of internet problems. My Wi-Fi is down. And we just decided, you know what? Let's just try see if we can... Um, Oh, I don't even know what it's called, but hotspot. Hotspot. <laughs> I, I I was like, maybe we can hotspot off my phone. And so I decided to try that. And guess what? That's how we're coming to you. So <laughs> that's the ADHD brain, right? Yes. Like gonna find a way to make it work. I yep. had to do that during my thesis, the in grad school, my thesis presentation, the office they used, the projector was down. So I had to give it in a classroom and it was not the right same environment at all. And I was like, I'm going to make this work. And I did did a great job. It was just funny because I think that can happen with us ADHDers, but it's great because we're such problem solvers. Yep, we'll MacGyver it. Yes, exactly. And it'll turn out great. Okay. Thank you again, Becca. Thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Becca, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. One more thing, I just wanted to remind you, we will be running our entirely free five days to fall in love with your ADHD brain master series beginning on October 11th. You can find more information and sign up at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash I love my brain. I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smart Ass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smart Ass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.